Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Happy Christmas week. So good to be with you. Uh, as I mentioned last week, we are going to be for the next four weeks in the Psalms, uh, in one in particular, Psalm 23. So if you would turn with me uh, to Psalm 23, and this morning we're just gonna we're just gonna look at the first three verses. But I want to read the whole thing because Psalm 23. It's hard to stop in the middle, right? Hard. Psalm 23. I'm just going to read all seven verses. We'll pray and then we'll look specifically at the first three verses. But this is Psalm of David and this is what he says. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff that comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and ask that as we open up your word, and open it up to one that frankly has been on a lot of our hearts, has that sentimental value, has that emotional pull, is traditionally known and understood, maybe for some of us in this room, is the only passage of Scripture in the Bible that we we know by heart. God, I pray that this morning you would give us fresh eyes, that you would open our hearts to understand what it means to have a good shepherd. And I pray, especially as we go into this season as we are already in the middle of a season that carries so much meaning for so many different people, I pray that you would renew and restore the joy of our salvation and you would remind us who you really are. Pray for those of us who are hurting that you would restore our souls. Pray for those of us that are happy and filled with joy, surrounded by family and friends, that you would give us eyes to see those in our midst who are hurting as well. I pray that you would remind us where all of our blessings truly come from. I pray that you would remind us what our truest blessing is, the Lord is our shepherd. I pray that after this morning, after today, we would corporately, unified, together, bow on our knees before this great God, our shepherd, and worship him in spirit and in truth. And we ask that you would be glorified in this, that we would find ourselves more and more attracted and allured to Jesus Christ, our Lord, today than we've ever been. In Jesus' name, amen. Arthur Dwar, in his uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, novel, All the Light We Cannot See, All the Light You Cannot See, pictures two children who, uh, in the duration of his story, 
are coming together in the mid-1930s from different points of life, their lives intersect. And one particular character, German, a young German boy by the name of Werner, finds himself and grows up in poverty. He's uh, destitute. His dad dies in the mines, and he finds himself um, stuck with that very dangerous career path because he's poor. And he finds himself in the middle of the story being pulled out of that because of his love for radios. And he is... Uh, swept away into a very uh, renowned school where he's trained. The only problem is it's a training for uh, a group of youth for Germany's armies. At the time, it's Hitler's youth. And at the beginning stages, he finds himself very excited about his new destiny, excited about uh, his new future, excited. But little by little, he begins to see little things that are very wrong. And in the middle of his... uh, of his journey in his heart, he experiences these conflicts. That he wants to control his destiny, but he, he doesn't like where his destiny is taking him. And he finds a friend by the name of uh, Frederick, uh, an aloof uh, kid who likes to read books and look at birds. And Frederick in the story functions as kind of his moral compass. In the middle of the story is, is Werner is wrestling with his destiny, just trying to control the outcome of his life. Frederick looks at him through his glasses and says, you're, you know, your problem, Werner, is that you still believe you own your life. I, like Frederick, this fictional character, want to challenge the popular idea in our culture and in our world And in our city, that happiness comes from you being in control. I want to challenge this prevailing idea that you will be happy if you can somehow claw your way into controlling your own life. And I want to do it by looking at the posture of King David, who we've been studying for two months in the series Walking with Kings. We now look at a an expression of his own heart in Psalm 23, specifically through the first three verses, where the entire first verse thuds to a halt with that last word. There's so much happening just in the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. And like a, a, just a period at the end of a sentence, we, our eyes just focus on want. Thuds to a halt with a single word, want. Want stands for anything in the world that you feel like you need. Whether it's food and money, sustenance, paying the bills, but also intangible things that we also desperately need like security and comfort and protection, identity, friendships, anything out there that you need for your life to function. In fact, I would say that for us Santa Barbans, we take, uh, we take needs to a whole different level. We have needs over in this column and we have wants over in this column and somehow these wants, which could just be our our, uh, level of expenses and living, which changes depending on how much money we make, those things can over time become our felt needs. You live a certain way, you function in a certain way, you're used to a certain style of living, all of a sudden the things that you used to want now become the things that you desperately need. And as we read Psalm 23, we're reading a guy who's really in tune with things that he needs. From the very start of his childhood, he was a shepherd boy. 
He had a career that was looked down upon by everybody in his society. He knew what it meant to be in need. Even as he began to see the outside world and he was sent by his dad to the battle to see uh, this guy, this nine-foot man named Goliath uh, uh, scorning Israel's armies, he was belittled by his, his older brothers. Even as he had the favor and the power of the Spirit of God and he slew that very giant, the king that he looked up to, Saul, would look upon him with jealousy. And that jealousy would erupt into a, a vicious desire to kill him. So his own king wants to kill him. His own brothers look down upon him. He would later become that very king that God anoints and his troubles would not leave him. He would still be in a place of need. His own child, Absalom, would turn against him. Before that, he'd look out of his own felt needs to Bathsheba. He would take her, commit adultery. He would murder her husband, as the story goes that we are very familiar with at this point. Out of need, David moved. Little by little, over and over, he began to understand his deep felt needs. And out of this, he would write Psalm 23. David, who faced difficult seasons, not unlike us, perhaps far beyond the ones that we experience, would show us at least three things. Here's what I understand. He would, in other words, he would say, here's what we can't do when we face those impossible situations. Here's what we can do, and here's where we can go from there. In other words, here's what we can't do. We can't fix ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We can't save ourselves. And often, I'd even say, there are times where we can't even fix our situation. Absolutely powerless to change any of the situations around us. We like to think that we have a certain amount of control over a lot of things, but if you think about it, there's actually very little that you can change about the stuff around you. And we see this assumption in David just by the first phrase that he used, the Lord is my shepherd. He's assuming that the Lord being our shepherd, we are in some way the sheep. In fact, you see that pattern through the whole Bible. We are pictured, metaphorically speaking, as sheep. find that a little bit insulting. If you've ever seen sheep, it's a little bit insulting. I've read the Bible a little bit. I've seen other animals. I would rather be them. Leviathan in the book of Job. I'd rather be compared to the Leviathan or anything other than sheep. But from Genesis to Revelation, we're compared to sheep. It is the most insulting animal to be compared to, but that's what God uses. It's an important assumption that we should have before going through Psalm 23 because of the default solutions we will throw around whenever we reach those dark points, whenever we reach times of need. We default to certain things. We try to take care of ourselves. Perhaps when you hit a season of need or want, you begin to become busy and overproductive. The more you do, the better you'll be. Maybe you become a little self-serving. If you're lacking in some regard, you begin to think more about yourself. Of course, the more you think about yourself, the less you think about other people. So maybe you become a bit of a cutthroat, stepping on other people's backs in order to watch out for yourself. Or maybe you're not busy and overproductive and self-serving. Maybe you completely give up. Maybe you're the type of person that when, uh, when hard seasons come your way, you just want to lock yourself in the closet and watch Netflix for you know, the next week. 
Maybe it's not giving up. Maybe it's self-medicating. In other words, it's giving up, but you're fooling yourself into thinking that you're not giving up. You're, you're still going, but you're medicating yourself to make yourself feel better. There's a variety of different ways that we try to solve our own problems. That's why the first assumption in Psalm 23 is that the Lord is a shepherd, assuming that we are sheep. If we don't find ourselves in a place of humble brokenness, understanding that we often cannot fix the situation that we're in, we certainly can't fix ourselves, we will even read Psalm 23 wrongly. Sure, we'll read it, we know it, we love it, we quote it, it's written on pieces of paper and car, uh, 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 posters and mugs in our, uh, in our homes. We understand it. We teach it to our children. But we give it lip service. We don't actually mean it because we are truly the shepherd of our own lives. And sure, you might say, ah, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But I need some money, and so I'm going to sacrifice my family and spouse and children on the altar of my career, working 70 hours a week, including weekends, because I need stuff. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil except for terrorism. He leads me in paths of righteousness except when I'm not carving my own path. In other words, Lord, you can shepherd me when, I, when I'm, I'm not busy shepherding myself. King David starts off by saying and reminding us really that we're not as independent as as we would like to believe. We can't fix ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Often we can do very little about the situations that we're in. David starts off by saying we need a leader. Every single one of us in this room needs a leader. And it's the Lord who is our shepherd. We need the Lord David, when he speaks about the Lord, he often, in fact, a lot of the biblical authors will use metaphors in order to bring God to a level that we can understand. This ethereal, all-powerful, all-seeing, omnipresent, omniscient God that we can't even imagine. These biblical authors will use metaphors to kind of bring him down to a level that we can understand. One of the metaphors often used in the Bible is a shepherd. So fitting coming from David who understood what it meant to be a shepherd. He knew that sheep were fickle, crazy, defenseless, a little silly at times, and often naive. And him being a shepherd knew what it meant to lead them. In fact, he was the one who would tell Saul when Goliath was shouting down Israel's armies, I can handle this guy because God has enabled me to do it. And he has proved it already when Lions and bears came after my sheep. It's often been said of ancient, uh, from ancient shepherds that when a sheep is separated from the rest of its pack, the first thing that it will do is scurry about running for a place to hide and then bleed out as loud as it can in sheer terror, alerting any predators in proximity to it where it's at. Can imagine this happening to a lonesome sheep in David's fold? As a lion came after it and a bear came after it, and what did David do? Slaughtered him by the power of the Spirit. He goes up to, Saul, uh, he goes up to King Saul and says, I can, I can handle human lions and bears because I've done this before. 
David not only was a shepherd to sheep, but he would grow up to become a shepherd to God's people. Psalm 78, verse 70 through 71, God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes that he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. And so this man who shepherds sheep from lions and bears and who shepherds the nation of Israel from nine-foot giants and their armies turns around, falls to his knees, and says, the Lord is my shepherd. I want to know who is this warrior's shepherd. What we can't do is fix ourselves, but what we can do is follow a good leader. Now, you may be thinking, from your experience with bad leaders, why would I want to follow this one? Perhaps you've been under the iron fist the self-serving motivations and nature of bad human leaders in this life, and you're asking, how, how does God lead his people? We're told in Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I want to talk about each of these lines just very briefly. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I love that first line because there are moments in my life where I'm so stressed out or where I'm, when I'm so angry or where I'm so anxious or driven by so many different emotions that I cannot, by my own strength, stop myself in that moment and say, you know what, my life is falling apart, but I'm just going to think very clearly right now about my behavior I'm just going to open the Bible, have a Bible study, and just clearly just walk into the arms of No, there are moments in my life where I need God to step into my business and stiff arm me and say, Chris, settle down. You're going crazy right now. I need someone to lead me in green pastures, to make me lie down in green pastures. What do you envision when you think of green pastures? Close your eyes for a moment and just think of, of Jesus, of God, of the Good Shepherd leading you into green pastures. What do you think of when you think of green pastures? Here's what I used to think. Perhaps this would resonate with you. I would think of a, just a beaming, just unending garden of rainforests and foliage. Just waist-deep grass, just up to my face, just grass everywhere. <clears throat> We think of green pastures as just a jungle of everything that we've ever needed right there in that spot. And you know what that does to your reading of Psalm 23? It makes you say, yeah, I'll pray for God to lead me to green pastures because once I get there, I'll have everything I need for the rest of my life. I want to transport you to Israel right now. In the early ancient centuries, when shepherds would lead their sheep across green pastures, You ever seen the Middle East? No rainforests. Specifically in the wilderness surrounding Israel, uh, one speaker, Ray Vanderlaan, speaks of this specific area, uh, and if you've been there, some of you have gone there with me, some of you perhaps will go there with me later, and you will see in the wilderness area, desert hills spreading throughout the area, hills. And on these hills is rocks and sand, nothing else. In fact, from a distance, you don't see any greenery at all. But what you will notice about these hills, especially the grazing hills, are these little trails that kind of wrap themselves around the hill. They they look like concentric circles down the hill. 
uh, that are parallel to each other, and they're spaced out. Those are grazing trails. They're spaced out so that sheep will walk on those trails, and they're just far enough from each other so that when a sheep puts its head out to the left side, it will be meeting the head of the sheep to its left. And in that way, they're clearing that entire space between them. So what a shepherd would do is he'd take his little flock of sheep and he would cover the entire hillside that way. That's how they would kind of graze an entire hillside in one fell swoop. They're just taking out the whole thing. Now, if you were to look at a shepherd taking their flock of sheep, and you could watch it even today, these Bedouin shepherds taking their sheep or their their flock of sheep across a hill and grazing the hillside, You'd be asking, especially if you were uh, 100 feet away, what are they eating, rocks? They're just chewing on pebbles? Is this like a weird sheep food out here in the Middle East? But if you got closer, you'd notice something really small. In that region, there's not a lot of water. It rains a little bit, about three, maybe three months out of the year. And it doesn't rain much, but it rains a little bit. Furthermore, for some of you that, that went in September with me, you understand Israel is very humid especially in during parts of the year. And so that humidity and that rain that falls in that, that little time of the year will actually f- uh, fall on these rocks. It will form on these rocks, drip down the rocks. And if you were to walk down these hills, you, if you were to get really close, you'd be able to pick up a rock. And right next to every rock would be these little tufts of grass. I went out in the front and actually picked a couple right here. It looks like this. These aren't Israel native plants right here, but something like this. I just want you to envision it. Under every rock, a little tuft of grass or a shoot of greenery, like this. This is what the Bible envisions when it says green pastures. Green pastures. <laughs> it's not envisioning a jungle of foliage that's going to meet your every need for life. What the shepherd is doing is he's leading the sheep to a little rock where it can get a little mouthful right there. And then after that, he's leading it to another rock where it can get a little mouthful from there. The imagery that's being concocted by the the shepherd psalm is not that God is bringing you to a place where you'll be set for life and you don't need him anymore, but that he is providing what you need when you need it in the moment that you need it. Mouthful by mouthful. An ancient rabbi once said that worry is trying to deal with tomorrow's problems on today's pastures. Or as Moses saw so vividly in Exodus, it's those people who are storing up manna to prepare for a month when God simply wanted to take care of them in that moment. It's a desperate, sustaining moment by moment. And so the shepherd who sustains us moment by moment causes his sheep to depend on him moment by moment. Second thing we're told is that he leads us beside still waters. He leads us beside still waters. One writer was describing his experience of sheep when he said within, uh, when he was, he was in the Middle East watching sheep as they were drinking, and he noted that within sound and sight of water, these sheep would all begin to turn and run towards it, showing that they were very thirsty. Yet at their arrival, as I watched, I quote, as I watched them, only a few would be drinking, while others all along the edge of the water, like the pedestrians on a fashionable street in the great metropolis, keep passing each other up and down the stream. I learned the valuable lesson that they do not drink from rippling waters." Sheep are scared of rippling waters. So scared are they of moving waters that shepherds often have to carve out a little path from a stream in order to collect a body of water that is still. David, 
an experienced shepherd says that this shepherd leads us beside still waters. In other words, he leads us to those experiences of stillness and tranquility and rest in the middle of the chaos. When our hearts are palpitating with worry and anxiety, this shepherd has the ability to calm you down. Great St. Augustine who used to spend his young years chasing after anything that he could, money, career, sex, in order to satisfy the inner cravings of his heart, would one day in a garden open up a scroll that was the book of Romans, get converted on the spot. As a light shone into his heart, he saw Jesus as that one thing that he needed and desperately wanted. He would later go on to quote something that has been immortalized when he said, God, you have made us for yourselves. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. The shepherd is the one who brings us to rest. The shepherd is the one who brings us into the green pastures. And he does so in order to restore our soul. What's a soul? (laughs) When I was a... (laughs) When I was a kid, I remember watching uh, Roger Rabbit when the bad guy, Christopher Lloyd, would destroy or kill the cartoons, he would do it by opening up that tin with all of the sludge in it. And whenever a a cartoon died, this wispy, ethereal part, like this wispy spirit would rise into the heavens and that that would be like death, from death to life. I always envision that as a person's soul. Whenever I think of someone's soul, I'd be like, it's it's like this spirity, wispy part of who you are, I think. The Bible, when it speaks of the soul, speaks not of a wispy part of you. It actually speaks of it as the deepest part of who you are. The soul is the whole human being. Do you understand? We used to talk, we talked about this a long time ago when we went through uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 through the Sermon on the Mount, but there are different parts to who you are. You're not just a mind that thinks thoughts. You're also a heart that feels You're not just a heart, but you are a body. You're not just a body, but you have a social dimension to you. And each of those things is important to your well-being, to your wholeness, to your ability to know and follow Christ. Meaning, if all you're doing in your spiritual maturity is just pouring into your intellect, it could be Bible studies, it could be sermons, it could be books. If all you're doing is learning stuff in your mind, your mind will grow, but the rest of you won't. And I gave a testimony years ago about how there was a season in my life where I was doing just that, but I was also racked with bitterness and depression and burnout and things in my heart that I had not let God touch. And even though I was devouring sermons, I was even preaching sermons, and I was studying the word, and I was doing all of that intellectual mind stuff, my heart was so closed off to the things of God that the things I was studying in my mind could not get down into the depths of my heart. I was what was called, I was disintegrated. I was disconnected from myself. It doesn't just stop there. You could be letting the Lord minister to who you are emotionally, to your heart. You could even be learning stuff in your mind, Bible studies, precepts, all of that stuff that, that, that come with learning. But there is also the body part of you. And that's not just your skin and your knuckles and your elbows and your flesh and blood. But that also speaks, biblically speaking, of your decisions of your behavior, of your actions, of your habits. 
So you could be reading the Bible every day. You could be uh, learning and being more self-aware of your own feelings and emotions and giving them to God, but you could be addicted to porn and alcohol, drugs, anger, bitterness, because the body itself needs to be aligned with everything else. We learned about that in the Sermon on the Mount. Good practices, good habits. You could be learning the Bible in the mind. You could be uh, opening up your heart to the Lord. You could be developing good habits, and you could be doing it all by yourself. Yet the Bible tells us that we need each other, that social dimension. All of these things are a part of who you are. And they were all meant to be healed and working together for the glory of God. They are all meant to be integrated. Think of a computer. If you have a Mac and you, ha- uh, you have a o- the OS system, if you have a PC, maybe you have Windows. What are those things? Well, you can't see them. But what do they do? They function to keep everything in your com- computer integrated with itself. That operating system is there to integrate the the computer memory and the processes and the hardware and the software so that all of it functions together and it's a whole piece. When one of those things is out of whack, the whole thing falls apart. Dallas Willard once once said that the soul is is your operating system. If you're wondering what your soul is, it's not a wispy thing that just kind of floats out here. It's what the Bible speaks of as the deepest part of who you are. When one thing in you is not working, the soul feels disintegrated and needs to be healed and put together. And here in Psalm 23, David says, he leads me by still waters into the green pastures where he restores my soul. He puts me back together. Any of you feel like you're falling apart? He restores your soul. The point of this section of Psalm 23 is that whether our lives are filled with comfort or stacked with worry, what we need most in that moment is not to rely on the stuff that we have or the comfort that we have or to rely on our own ability to save or fix ourselves, but to turn to that great shepherd pictured in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Throughout the Old Testament, God has been giving us pictures. He likens himself to a great shepherd, but he also goes a a little extra distance by giving us pictures of what a shepherd is supposed to be. He gives Moses to the people of Israel. This is a shepherd. He gives King David to the people of Israel. This is a shepherd. As a story unfolds, he keeps giving human kings and prophets and shepherds to his people to give them an idea of what a shepherd is supposed to be so that we know how to relate to our God. And yet, time in and time out, even though those shepherds do good things here and there, they largely fail to represent who God is as our shepherd. So perhaps you're, at, you're praying this psalm, you're saying, the Lord is my shepherd, but I have no idea what that means. That's why Christmas changes everything. That's why Christmas changes everything about your Christianity, about your spirituality, about your worry, about your anxiety, about how you live your life. Because locked up in the Old Testament, there is one more shepherd being alluded to and hinted to. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, you, Bethlehem, you 
seemingly insignificant small town on the outskirts of Rome that nobody cares about. Out of you shall come forth a ruler who will guide my people Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. In Micah chapter 5, verse 4, it says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus would later in John match that prophecy by saying, I am the good shepherd. That person that David was speaking about as he was referring to God the Father is manifest in Jesus Christ. That's why Christmas changes everything. Jesus is the great shepherd pictured in Scripture. Peter would actually take it a little bit farther when he would describe Jesus in this term. He would say, he is the chief shepherd. And when the chief shepherd appears, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. Do you know that shepherd is where we get the term pastor? Those are synonymous terms. Peter is looking at Jesus and he's saying, this is our chief pastor. If we were to change it into our vernacular, into contemporary vernacular today, we would say, Jesus is our senior pastor. That's why I never refer to myself as the senior pastor. I am an under-shepherd, and sure, there are other under-shepherds and other little pastors, but we believe at this church that there is one chief shepherd and one senior pastor who is only able to shepherd us perfectly and rightly, and the rest of us, us pastors and shepherds included, follow and are led by him. Jesus is able to sustain you in every moment to bring you to those places of rest and green pastures, to bring you to those places of wholeness as he restores your soul. And in the midst of everything, even as things are falling apart around you, even as you suffer, even as you go through turmoil, even as you uh, experience needs and wants, culture will say to you, happiness comes from independence. Happiness and security come from carving out your own path. It all comes from self-reliance. It comes from pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. It comes from trying harder, making your own niche, carving your path, doing it for yourself, patting yourself on the back, watching out for yourself. And to that, I just want to remind you, don't forget, your problem, Werner, is that you still believe you own your own life. Psalm 23 confronts us. It doesn't just warm our hearts. It doesn't just embrace us, even though it does all of that. It first confronts us and says, happiness does not come from being in control of your own life. It comes from giving that control to a good shepherd. Where do we go from here? I want you to think, I was doing this a couple weeks ago, or I just was looking at this passage, and it just seems so easy such a familiar passage that I just, I just read it too fast. I was like, yeah, amen. Lord is my shepherd who shall not want, blah, 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 blah. How am I going to pay the bills? <laughs> and I just began in that moment to stop myself and think, how has Jesus, and maybe you can do this yourself, maybe you can do it during worship today, how has Jesus been a good shepherd to me? I stopped, I took out a piece of paper, and I began to write down a list. Well, he's, he's done this. He's been that. He was there when this happened. He was, 
in the midst of that. He did this, he did that, he did that, and they came up with a pretty sizable list. I was like, wow. Then I looked at the last half of that first sentence and I, I said, do I still want anything? Not that wants per se are bad, but in context of this passage, what, what are those things in my life that, I, that keep me up at night? Those things that I have that if I lost them, I, wouldn't, I, would, I, I would lose far more than my sleep. What are those things that I don't have that I'm, I'm positioning my life to get, even at the expense of my own well-being and other people? What are my wants? And I begin to make out a list. And the list was just as long as the other list. All of the things that Jesus has shepherded me so well at and a list just as long of things that I still want despite that. I begin to look at my two lists. Perhaps you can do this yourself. I said, why do I still want things? Why do I still worry about stuff? Why am I so driven by anxiety? Perhaps you would have a similar list. Perhaps you know in your mind that Jesus is a good shepherd. You have no reason to doubt. But you're still working in such a way. And you're still living your life in such a way. And you're still thinking and operating and functioning in such a way. That Jesus is more of like a secondary backup shepherd. But you really are the, the real one. I want you to ask yourself why. For me, it was a trust issue. For a lot of us, it's a trust issue. Perhaps you've been hurt before by people in your life, maybe so badly or so often that it's hard for you to trust anyone else. You've been hurt by people you see and can feel and touch. How are you going to trust someone that you cannot see and feel and touch, but only read about? And I want to ask you an honest question. I want you to ask this question of yourself. What would it take for you to trust him? What would it take to break down those walls and cause you to trust one more time? Simon Sinek once observed, as he was observing military leaders, he saw that people were able, at least in this context, people trust in the military, specifically, people trust leaders because they know that they would die for them. And he began to translate that to employees and corporations and companies, but his salient point was, we grow in our trust when we know that someone has our interests ahead of their own. When they put our needs and our interests ahead of their own, we will, we will trust them enough to follow them. So much so to the degree that they're willing to put our interests ahead of their own, so we will follow them. Brothers and sisters, I want to divert now your attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd is good because he lays down his life for the sheep. Gothi once said, you can easily judge the character in a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. 
Paul said, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know someone who's worthy of trust, who can earn trust? It's the good shepherd who puts your interests ahead of his own to the degree that he's willing to die for you. Not for people who have been doing good things for him all along, but for sinners who have been turning from him. He is the shepherd that goes after lost sheep. And in the midst of shepherds, in the midst of the stories of Moses and David and our earthly leaders and earthly pastors and earthly examples of people in our lives that influence us and that we look up to, one of these leaders is not like the other. One of these shepherds is not like any other that you have ever experienced in your life. Do you see how Jesus is this morning? Do you see how he leads his sheep, how he leads his people? This is the one your broken, disintegrated soul has been looking for. Do you believe it? And do you want it? That's what faith is. Faith is moving beyond just a mere intellectual belief system. Yes, I believe a few facts about Jesus to a simple call to follow Jesus. It is, in other words, saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Here are the things that he does to lead me. I now am going to follow him. I'm going to follow him. See, Jesus doesn't merely sustain you just so that you can live for yourself. He doesn't merely quiet or still your heart by the still waters so that you can begin, uh, continue listening to yourself. Nor does he merely put your soul back together so that you can dismantle it the next day. He also leads you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Literally speaking, this phrase means he brings us back in repentance. He conforms us into his image. And I love how the psalm is strangely personalized. David, who's often speaking in corporate terms, stops in this moment to say, the Lord is my shepherd. Can you or have you been able, are you able right now to say, truly and honestly, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, and I follow him wherever he decides to take me. If your answer is no, the good news for you is that he's still waiting for you to return, to repent of your wandering, to turn back from the paths that you were taking, to give up your desire to control your life and to return to the rightful shepherd of your soul where you can find rest. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up. And as we transition into a posture of worship, in, specifically in song, I want you, with me, to just continue to ask these questions. What is it that I'm trying so hard to secure in my life and why? Why don't I trust the great shepherd? Have you not proven yourself? Go beyond those symptoms in your life. Well, I need more money. Well, I'm lonely and I need relationships. Well, I need this and I need that. Go deeper than those things into the motivations of your heart. Why are you afraid? Why are you insecure? 
Why are you racked with anxiety and guilt and shame? Why, why, why? It's in those moments, in the deep part of your heart, that the shepherd will come along and begin to heal you where you hurt the most. And when he does that, perhaps you'll grow in trust just a little bit more. Heavenly Father, we just ask right now that as we sing and take communion and bow and pray, that Christ, you would be manifest in this building by the power of your Holy Spirit as the shepherd that you are. As the psalmist says elsewhere, you know our frames, you know that we are dust. Our hearts are deceitful beyond anything else. Who can understand them? We scurry about trying to wrestle for ourselves security for the years to come. Peace of mind, stillness of heart. And year in and year out, we discover that we have not gotten enough for ourselves. Lord, when are we going to stop trying? Perhaps for some of us, it's going to take the hand of God close down every door and every diversion and every detour and lead us into your presence to see that you are truly the only answer for all of our needs and wants. And I pray that you would do that. As the good shepherd that you are, you would situate yourselves right, yourself right in the middle of this room. Calm our restless hearts. Still our wandering minds. the eyes of our hearts to take you in. I pray that in that place we would find the still waters, we would find the green pastures, most of all we would find the good shepherd. You be worshipped and adored in this house.